Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19? Chapter 19. Now, as we're working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, as we come to 19, chapter 19, Jesus and his guys, as we have said before, are on the move. They are on their way towards Jerusalem. And then, of course, the final events that would lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 20, we see them passing through Jericho, which is about 28 miles from Jerusalem. And then chapter 21 opens up four days before his crucifixion uh, with the triumphal entry. So we're getting close now. In chapter 19, around the middle of the chapter, through the middle of chapter 20, forms one section. No need to understand that. It's all kind of the same, built around the same incident. What was that incident? Well, it opens up in chapter 19 when a rich, uh, young uh, leader of a synagogue comes to Jesus one day and says, look, what must I do to have eternal life? And you can read the passage, and we went through it in detail so you can get the CD, but Jesus discerning that his money was on the throne of his heart was really hindering him from following Jesus fully, uh, says to him, look, you've got to you know, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then you'll be able to follow me with all your heart. Well, it says that he went away sad because he had a lot of money and didn't want to give it up. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and said, look, it's very difficult. In fact, it's impossible for a wealthy person who trusts in their wealth to get them to heaven to get to heaven. And that's when Peter said to him in verse 27, well, I, I get that there are people that don't want to leave their possessions to follow you. And I realize they won't be entering the kingdom. But what about us who have left possessions, okay? See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first now verse 30 because we've studied all this before but i wanted to give the background because verse 30 is a principle that jesus uses to introduce a parable which covers the first 15 verses of chapter 20, at which time he restates the principle in verse 16. But the whole thing actually belongs to chapter 19. Because it's all still the same idea, it's still the same context, all right? It's not separate things. It all goes back to the rich young ruler, okay? And Peter wants to know what kind of rewards await those Jews. He's a Jew, and he's thinking like a Jew. And at this point, the Jews believed the kingdom was for the Jewish people. Didn't realize at this point God was going to bring Gentile believers into the kingdom of God. Paul talks about that in Romans 11. But Peter wants to know what kind of rewards await those Jews in the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, who do leave homes and careers and even families for a time to follow Jesus and serve him, we'll say, in the mission field and so on. Well, as we just read, Jesus shares some of the blessings that belong to those who follow him in this life. And also, of course, 
in the coming millennial kingdom. And then he adds in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And again, this becomes a principle of the coming kingdom. A principle so important that Jesus states it twice. Once here in verse 30 of chapter 19 and again in chapter 20, verse 16. And sandwiched in between the two principles, the Lord gives a parable to illustrate that principle. Now, you have to be careful here, all right? Uh, what you connect this principle and parable to, uh, or you're going to misinterpret what Jesus is teaching and come away with a faulty understanding of the passage. If you connect the principle and the corresponding parable to Peter's question about kingdom rewards, well, you're going to come away believing that what Jesus is teaching here is that it really doesn't matter how long you serve the Lord on the earth. Whether it be for many years or a few short months, we all get the same reward, as we're going to see from the parable. However, that goes against all the other places in the New Testament that tell us that the amount of rewards that we're going to receive someday for our service to the Lord is not going to be the same for every believer. In fact, it depends on, first of all, how we have served the Lord. Or in other words, what were the motives in our hearts when we served Jesus? Did we do it out of a love for Jesus? Or was it a desire to be recognized, be in the spotlight? Look at me, I'm so spiritual, I'm serving God. Okay? Number one, how did we serve the Lord? Number two, how faithful were we in serving Him over the course of our entire ministry? Some people start out well serving the Lord, but then greed gets a hold of them, or they fall into an affair, or something, pride takes over. And they start well, but they don't finish so well. That will limit their rewards in heaven. And then, of course, I guess we would all agree that the time you serve the Lord on this earth, those that have the opportunity to, set, to serve Him for many years, well, they're going to receive the most rewards in heaven, okay? But all of these things are going to be factored into how many rewards we're going to receive once we have been raptured and stand before the Lord Jesus at the Bema seat, the place where he is going to pass out these rewards. Now, he did speak of this in Revelation 22, verse 12, when he said, Behold, I am coming quickly. And that's a reference to the rapture, I believe. And my reward is with me, listen, to give to everyone according to his work. So when Jesus comes at the rapture, the first thing he's going to do is, we're going to stand before the Bema seat, and he's going to give us our rewards according to the work that we have done for him, how faithful we were, the motives of our hearts, etc. To properly interpret the principle that Jesus lays out in verses 30 of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20, and the parable that's kind of sandwiched in between, we have to connect it not to the rewards that Peter talked about, but to his dealing with the rich young ruler. And you see, the rich young ruler came to Jesus Christ with a very specific question. And that was, what can I do to have eternal life? In the Jewish mind, that was the same as saying, what do I do to get into heaven? Uh, that was the real issue here. Jesus makes that clear in verse 1 of chapter 20, when he says that uh, the parable has to do with the kingdom of heaven. Not the rewards of heaven, but the kingdom itself. How does a person actually become part of the kingdom? Entering into the kingdom. And that was, again, at the heart of the question the, the rich young ruler asked Jesus Christ. And that becomes really the background uh, and the basis for Jesus giving this principle. Now, 
Please stay with me. I, I, I'm going to jump around a little bit, and I, I want you to get this in your mind, okay? You're probably thinking, I'm not sure where he's going with this, all right? Try to put your thinking caps on, okay? Because this is not an easy passage. I found that out yesterday as I was studying for it, and how many people are all over the map with regard to what they think this, they focus on the parable primarily. And that's where they go wrong. They divorce it from, the, it's sandwiched between two principles. And if you don't see it in that light, you're going to just mess the whole thing up, okay? It's not about rewards. It is about eternal life. Jesus made that clear also in verse 29 of chapter 19 when he talks to Peter about the blessings or the rewards. He says, And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or lands for my sake shall have a hundredfold. Many blessings in this life was the idea. And inherit eternal life. And then from that point, he launches into this parable about eternal life not about coming rewards in heaven. And we'll touch on that more as we go. But there are those who reject that interpretation that the denarius in the parable, which we'll see in a moment, represents eternal life. And they reject it because they say each man worked for that denarius, and we don't work for eternal life. And certainly that's true. But parables, guys, listen to me now, is a teacher who hates parables, okay, not really, but they're not easy. Parables are not perfect communicators of truth. That's why Jesus always began his parables with the kingdom of heaven is like. Not exactly like, but generally like. Because if you push a parable to the nth degree and try to interpret every little detail, it, you're going to get off in the weeds, I'm telling you. Parables are designed to communicate one basic principle or truth. And if you try to make a big, dogmatic, exhaustive theological presentation out of a parable, you're gonna, you'll go insane, okay? I just warned you. You will go insane. I have come to the border of insanity trying to do that with parables, and I backed off and realized, no, that's not what the Lord intended when he gave, gives these parables, all right? They are not perfect communicators of truth. They are inferior but they're getting across a, a point and if you can get past the flaw in this parable where these guys work for the denarius each of them you will see that it's all about grace the landowner keeps going out and trying to recruit guys to come work in his vineyard and when he does no matter how long or how short their labor in his vineyard was they all receive the same thing and that's exactly what will happen to all of us who have accepted his offer to work for him. The only way we can serve Jesus is by, first of all, receiving him as our Lord and Savior. So that's kind of implied in the parable, that these guys working for the Lord, working for the landowner, represent us working for the Lord. But we don't work for the Lord until we're saved. So that's implied, okay? But that's exactly what's going to happen to all of us who have accepted his offer to work for him. No matter how long we do, we will all receive the same eternal life in heaven. The blessed thing about this parable is that it, it doesn't teach that the longer you serve Jesus, and some people serve him all their lives. They get saved when they're eight years old, we'll say, all right? And, and, and they save, uh, serve him all their lives. Some people serve the Lord, uh, get saved later on in life. 
But the beautiful thing this parable is teaching us is that, you know what, it doesn't matter how long you serve the Lord. The, the ones who serve the Lord the longest don't get to live in the best houses in heaven, in the best neighborhoods. Because there's none of that in heaven, right? There are no upper class neighborhoods and ghettos in heaven. That's the, the beauty of this, right? That no matter how long we serve the Lord, we all receive the same eternal life. That's why this passage can't be talking about rewards because rewards will vary depending on how faithful each believer was in their service for Jesus. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, Paul said, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. We're all serving the same Lord, although we're still doing different things. And each one, Paul said, will receive his own reward according to his labor. It's obvious, right? that rewards are not going to be the same in heaven for every believer. But every believer will have eternal life in heaven. Now, let's look at the parable, and then we'll back into the principle. All right, but first the parable. Chapter 20, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, in those days, a landowner that needed help in his vineyard or in his fields would go out to the town square, the marketplace. The Greek is agora, all right? And um, he would do it early in the morning, right? As Jesus said here, early in the morning. That literally means at dawn, which is about roughly 6 a.m. Now, if you were a laborer, a tradesman, who wanted to be hired that day to work, you would also get there at about 6 a.m. with your tools, if you were a tradesman, hoping then that somebody would hire you to work for that day. Verse 2, and when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. As we have said, a denarius is the t was the typical day's wage back then for a laborer or a soldier. Very common to work all day for a denarius. And by the way, they were working 12-hour days, 6 to 6. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour uh, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. Now the third hour was about 9 a.m. The sixth hour, noon, ninth hour was 3 p.m. And the 11th hour would be roughly 5 o'clock in the evening, about an hour before the day was done. Verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, keep that in mind for a, just a minute, steward. There was the owner of the vineyard, and then he had a steward. He said, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I, what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because 
I am good. Once again, let me try to explain each part that the parable represents. The vineyard, I believe, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel because that's where Jesus came to do his work. That's where he sent his disciples to, to evangelize the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, God even calls the nation his vineyard. We could expand it, though, to include, just to be a reference to the mission field, okay? The landowner, that's God the Father. The steward is his son, Jesus Christ. The laborers are believers, and the denarius represents eternal life, which everyone received equally, who accepted the landowner's invitation to come work in his vineyard, which we know means spiritually they've received Christ, and now we're serving God. But whether a person comes to Jesus as a child and serves him their whole life, or like the thief on the cross, they come to Jesus just shortly before they die, listen, they all receive the same gracious gift of heaven. I like what Pastor John MacArthur said on the subject. He said, and I quote, Believing tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, and social outcasts will have the same heavenly residence as Paul, Augustine, Luther, and Wesley. There are no servant quarters or lower-class neighborhoods in heaven. Everyone will have a room in the Father's house especially prepared for him by the Son. John chapter 14, verse 2 tells us that. Every believer is part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. Every believer is a child of God and a fellow heir with Christ. And every believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. It is not that every believer receives an equal part, but that every believer receives equally the whole of God, the whole of God's grace and blessing. Just as hell is the total absence of God, heaven is the total presence of God, and every one of his children will enjoy equally the fullness of his presence there. Everyone who belongs to God has all of God. That great reality is summed up in the truth of John's marvelous declaration, which he wrote in 1 John 3, 2, When Jesus appears, we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. End quote. All right, that's the parable. Let's look at the principle that sandwiches the parable, where Jesus said, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now remember that Jesus gave this parable to illustrate this principle, a principle that he states twice, as we have said before. The Greek words translated first and last could mean first and last in a chronological sense, uh, the firstborn of a family, or the one who came in last in the race. I mean, they're used quite often in the New Testament, these two Greek words, to mean first and last in the chronological sense. That's true. But they're also used metaphorically in the Greek to mean first and last in the sense of importance and honor. Or in other words, first in the sense of superior position and last in the sense of lowest in rank or position. And I believe that's how Jesus is using these two words in verse 30 of chapter 19 and in verse 16 of chapter 20. It seems that Jesus gave a number of parables in the Gospels with this principle in mind. A principle that seems to have had the greatest application, listen, to Jewish believers. You see, and if you don't get this, 
This is something that's woven throughout the Gospels. And if you're not conscious of it, you're going to read parables and things and come away with a different interpretation of what I believe Jesus wants you to get, okay? It all goes back to the way Jews felt about the Gentiles. And even though Jewish believers eventually came to accept the fact that, yeah, okay, I guess God does love the Gentiles, because the rabbis taught God only made the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. That's a big step in their thinking, all right? Okay, well, maybe they're not fire fodder, but, uh, okay, I guess maybe he does love them. Not as much as us, but he loves them, I guess, all right? And they came to accept that God was allowing Gentiles into the body of Christ, or the church, but they still, the Jews still felt they were first, greater in rank than the Gentile believers. Now you can understand why. For 1,500 years, God had told them, stay separate from the Gentiles. They're defiled. You know, they're involved in, in, in all kinds of idolatry and immorality. And, and, and you know, you, you, I want you to stay separate from these people. I do not want you to be defiled by intermarrying with the Gentiles, hanging out with the Gentiles, etc. Stay separate. So that was the mindset, the cultural mindset that had been ingrained in them for 1,500 years from Moses until Jesus. Even the temple, if you study the temple, even the temple with its, with its um, concentric uh, courts uh, reinforced this idea that the Gentiles were not as close to God as the Jewish believers were. If you study the court, you will recognize the temple courts. You had the temple on the very highest level, the temple proper. Around the temple, you had the court of the priests. They were the closest to God and elevated above everybody else. Coming down a few steps, you had the court of the Jewish men. Only Jewish men could come this far, okay? And they were a little closer to God. Then a few steps down from there, you had the court of the women. That's as far as the Jewish women could go, right? And, uh, and that's where they were, kind of down even farther. And then you had a fence separating the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles, okay? And a fence that had signs along the way that says, any Gentile caught past this point will be executed, and basically you'll have nobody to blame but yourself. I'm paraphrasing, okay? Now the distance... From the court of the women, Jewish women, down to the court of the Gentiles, well, not just a few steps. You had to go down several flights all the way down to the bottom, even Gentile proselytes to Judaism. This is where they belong. They are the most removed and the farthest down on the rank that you could get because we Jews, we were here first, okay? Uh, We were God's people before anybody. We're closer to God. We outrank everybody else. God honors us more than the rest. And this mentality carried over even to the church age when we read how that in Acts chapter 10, God officially opened the door to the Gentiles to become members of the body of Christ, the church. And what does he do? The Holy Spirit sends Peter to the house of Cornelius, right? A Roman centurion. And his whole family, was, he was a God-fearer. He wasn't a believer yet, but he, he, he believed in the God of Israel. Uh, wasn't a Christian yet. And so the Holy Spirit sent Peter to his house. Peter preached the gospel, and Cornelius and his family all got saved. When the word got back to the leaders in Jerusalem about what had happened, they called Peter on the carpet to chastise him for going into the house of a Gentile. And you can read what happened in Acts chapter 15. They called the whole church council and figured out, well, okay, I guess God now is opening the door for the Gentiles to be saved. But they still thought they were still down in their ladder, down in the rung. They weren't as, as important as, as we are. They could be saved, but they were still inferior to Jewish believers in rank and honor. 
Now, Jesus sought to combat this thinking, not just in the parable we just studied in uh, Matthew 20, verses 1 to 15, but also in the others that he taught, uh, which basically presented that not only did God love the Gentiles, not only did God want to save the Gentiles, but actually, once a Gentile was saved, they were not lower in rank or in honor. In fact, they could become some of the greatest in the kingdom of God in honor and glory, even surpassing many Jews. Uh, if the Jew was self-righteous and proud and believed he deserved God's blessing because he was a child of Abraham, he would be less in the kingdom if he was a believer in Christ than would be the Gentile who said, God, I know I'm not worthy of anything. I'm just blessed that you would even allow me into your kingdom. Lord, you're so good. I, I, I'm nobody. I was a wicked pagan Gentile sinner. And you opened your door to me. You invited me into your... A person with that kind of heart who serves the Lord is going to be much greater in the kingdom of God, right? Than a Jewish believer who thinks, hey, because I'm Jewish, I deserve God's blessings. Okay? We see Jesus address this very issue. In the parable of the prodigal son, which again is not exact what we doesn't exactly communicate this principle because we're not talking about Jew and Gentile now. We're talking about two boys who were brothers in the same family, probably a Jewish family. But you remember the story how the one younger brother comes to his father one day, says, Dad, you know what? I'm really kind of tired of hanging out here, you know, in the family ranch and farm and doing all this stuff for you. I want to get out there and experience life for myself. Could I have my inheritance so I can get out there and do my thing? Father, very gracious, gives him the kid his inheritance, and he goes away to a far country, and there over the course of who knows how long, months, maybe years, he blows everything on wine, women, and song. He just parties himself all over the place, runs out of money, famine hits that land, finds himself, the only job he can get, slopping pigs. Comes to his senses, says, I'm going to go back to my dad's house. they got plenty of food there. I'm not worthy to be called his son any longer. I'll just ask to be a hired servant. Goes back to the father's house. Father sees him coming. You know the story. Runs to him, throws his armors around him. The kid starts off with his little spiel. Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me be a hired servant. Father says, don't even say another word. I won't hear of this. He says, bring a robe, put it on him, put a signet ring on his finger, power of attorney. He elevates the kid back to the same level of honor and prominence as his brother the self-righteous older kid who had not gone anywhere, had been serving the father faithfully for years while this other kid was sowing his wild oats, and he was ticked off about it, wasn't he? The older brother was absolutely upset. and said, what is this? this? This son of yours is out there, you know, partying, and here I'm serving you faithfully. What was the, what was the idea? I should have more honor. The length of my service, when compared with, his is much greater. I should be honored more than him. You shouldn't make him an equal with me. He should be a hired servant in your house, like he wanted to be. We also see this um, thing communicated that Jesus is trying to get across through these parables, some of them. We see it in the story of the tax collector and the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. We had two men in the temple. One was a hated tax collector. The other was a Pharisee. The Pharisee stood there and he prayed thus with himself, the Bible says, Jesus said. God wasn't even listening. But he's basically praying, you know, and God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, fornicators, and so on. Not like this 
tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give money to the poor and so on and so forth. And the tax collector stood in the back of the temple and beat his breast, wouldn't even look up towards heaven. He was so humiliated by his sin and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector went away justified, whereas the Pharisee did not. And again, Jesus reinforcing this idea that, you know, it's the heart that God is looking at, not your, your nationality. It's the heart that God is looking at. All these parables, and there's many others, were designed by Jesus to approach the same problem in different ways. Basically, the problem was the Jewish reaction to the Gentiles. First of all, could they even be saved? Well, many of them came to believe they could, but then, even after they got saved, were they still worthy of the same kind of blessings that we Jews are worthy of, since we're the people of God from the beginning? But listen to me, guys, that's not just uniquely a Jewish problem. It's a problem for any who think that because they have served God longer than others, they deserve something more from him than those who are, listen, Johnny-come-latelys to the faith, because in many people's minds, I'm talking about churchgoers now, okay, lifetime churchgoers. In their mind, longevity makes them first in rank and honor. Not only does longevity not make us first in honor in the kingdom, in other words, just because we have served God longer, have known Jesus longer, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have a greater place in the kingdom. Those who think this way may actually become least in the kingdom or last because of their pride coupled with this sense of entitlement. Okay? Hey, I've grown up in church. I went to Wawanas. I was in, I was in Sunday school learning Bible verses when you were out there, you know, whatever. Okay? I've been a Christian all my life. Who are you? You know, and that kind of thing, right? Look, we never deserve anything from God and nothing we do for him, and no matter how long we do it, makes him obligated to us in any way. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But you know, I had to laugh when I was studying this because I thought, this is the, this is the story of Calvary Chapel. Do you realize that back in the 60s when God began to reach out and touch and save and use and bless these hippies, do you know that the denominational mainline church went berserk? They went berserk. They called these kids uh, cult members. Uh, they railed against these kids. They uh, talked down about these kids. Uh, I still hear some people in mainline denominations talking against what happened back in the 60s as if these kids were phony Christians. As if the whole movement was built on something Satan did because, you know, you had these long-haired hippie types, you know, and, 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 and all of that, you know. And, and one pastor said when the Jesus movement started and Calvary Chapel was behind it all, and when that started, the suits went out, the ties went out, the hymns went out, and, it, and church was redefined by a bunch of hippies. I thought to myself, you know what, my friend? Those first century Christians look more like those hippies than you do with your three-piece suit. Where do you get off? Where do you, as the self-righteous older brother in the story of the prodigal son, where do you get off? Thinking that God's grace can't reach out and touch a bunch of drugged-out hippies. 
and because they don't look like you and talk like you and sing hymns like you, that somehow they're not worth anything in God's kingdom. In fact, they're not even saved. That's pathetic to me. That there are those who believe apparently because of their longevity of service and the way they dress, I guess, that basically they deserve God's blessings. They've earned the title of true Christian. Look, let me bring it to a close. The ultimate example of this principle of the first being last and the last first was demonstrated by Jesus in some of the parables that he gave that indicated that many Jews would not even make it into the kingdom where the Gentiles would. The Gentiles who had been outcasts, as we said, wicked pagans, but received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They were now members of the kingdom. Whereas many Jews who refused Christ and said clung to the law of Moses for righteousness, well, they would be excluded from the kingdom. I will have you turn to Matthew chapter 8. And let's pick up in verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, in other words, a Gentile, right? Pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, another come, and he comes. And to, the, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, in other words, his Jewish disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, the Jews who were promised the kingdom, or were supposed to be members of the kingdom, will be cast out into outer darkness, hell. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, the other classic parable that comes to mind, which I'm not going to get into because we're going to study it in a couple weeks, is the one in Matthew 22 about the marriage feast, remember? How a man had prepared a big marriage feast for his son, and invited all people to come, okay? These people were the Jews. But they refused to come. They didn't want to, They refused to come to Jesus and become the bride of Christ. But they made excuses. They were too busy. One started a business. I can't, I don't have time right now. And so they didn't come. So the father sends out more servants to say, look, everything is ready. Come now to the marriage supper. And they took some of this, this man's servants and beat some and killed others. Of course, those servants represented the prophets of the Old Testament that Israel kept killing as they worshipped idols and things. And so the man sent his armies out and wiped out the wicked, these wicked people. That's what happened in 70 AD, by the way. The Jews were wiped out. Many escaped, but uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Temple was sacked. 70 AD. And then what the, Jesus said about the parable, he said, Then the father said to his servants, those that were invited were not worthy to come. Now you go out into the highways, the byways, back alleys. Invite anybody who will come. Talk about the Gentiles, right? That the word has gone out that we, although salvation was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we now have been grafted in as Gentiles. We have been invited to become children in the family of God. And that's what Jesus meant in verse 16 of chapter 20 when he said, so the last will be first, and the first last, listen, for many are called, but few 
are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Look at guys. Jesus is calling all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He is calling and inviting, but only those who respond will have proven themselves to have been chosen before the foundation of the world. See, the Bible says that God has chosen some to be saved. The big question is, what is that choice based on? Is it based purely on the whim of God? I'm going to choose you. You I'm not crazy about. I'll take you. You're out. (laughs) Or does God save us? Are we elect according to the foreknowledge of God, as Peter said? Where God, looking down into history, knew all those who would receive Jesus at the invitation. And he chose them to become members of his kingdom. Some people have a problem with the idea of God choosing. Because, again, they don't understand the theology. And they say, you know, I don't think it's fair that God chooses some to be saved, to to give some eternal life. What if he hasn't chosen me? I always tell them, look, the wonderful thing about it is receive Jesus Christ right now as your Lord and Savior, and you will know a wonderful thing. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. But I don't want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Well, then maybe God didn't choose you. I don't know. (laughs) What do you want from me? All right? This idea of God choosing, it's, it's in your hands, basically. I can put it that way. If you want Jesus, you've been chosen. If you reject him, you haven't been chosen. But you know what? You have yourself to blame. Can't blame God, right? But let me just say this to you. Anybody who comes to Christ, Jesus said, first of all, I don't care how bad you are, how badly you've lived, I will never turn you away. I will never say to you, if you come to me for salvation, oh, you uh wow uh you know what i'm looking at the chart here and i'm seeing some of the things you did i i'm sorry you're just not the kind of person we want in this kingdom but you know anybody who comes to jesus for salvation he said i will never turn them away and once you come know this you will have the same eternal life as moses david paul Peter, and so on. Now, some may shine like the stars of heaven brighter than others because that's what the rewards are all about. But we're all going to live in the same heaven. We're all going to enjoy the same eternal life. We're all going to live in the Father's house. We're all going to be right there in the Father's presence. None of us are going to be on the other side of town in the slum area or the ghetto. We're all going to be right there. And I'm so thankful that this parable and many others teach that yes, salvation was of the Jews, but you Gentiles, I love you too, just as much. And you come to me, you won't be second-class citizens in heaven. In fact, I got news for the Jewish people. There are those who, because of their pride and how they are lifted up and they have an entitlement mentality, some of them will be excluded from the kingdom altogether. Others will enter and be lesser in the kingdom than those Gentiles who come in humility and thanksgiving. And you know what, guys? Let me just add to that. That also applies to these people who have grown up in denominations their whole lives, who think that, you know, because they went to Awanas and were memorizing scripture verses when other people were out drinking and so on. You working for the police department now? Okay. (laughs) 
Uh, really, that's all I got to say. Okay, we'll end with the. Uh, We'll end with the alert to the warning system. Maybe that's good, okay? God is giving us the warning signal. Time is short. Come to Jesus, right? Can't, I can't end it better than that, all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would keep us safe from the monsoon that is now upon us. Guide everyone home safely, but Lord, thank you for your offer of eternal life, and that, Lord, there are no second-class citizens in heaven. We thank you and praise you, Lord, and ask you to touch everyone here this morning who has not received you, Lord Jesus, that they would receive you as Lord and Savior and become a member of your kingdom right now. So thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless our week. We ask you to be with us, Lord, and guide us home now safely. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.